Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. This is your RV Navigator for September 2012. And the co-pilot is here as well, talking to you from a campground in Whitehorse, Yukon Territory. Hey, you know, we always say that we come and visit us at a campground near you, and... Somebody did, ah, in Fairbanks. <laughs> she tracked us down. Louise, nice <laughs> to hear from you. You didn't give us your last name, but we're very happy to hear from you, and this has happened to us actually three or four times, so when we say we might be parked in a campground near you... We, we really, really might, might be. be. It's a really a fun and a pleasure to hear from our listeners because you are always giving us great feedback about the podcast, and we just plain, plain like to hear from you. And we have heard from you uh, this month. We've had several very interesting emails, and I want to mention that we've actually had some folks send in rig photos for the rig photo page. So please keep sending those in, and we will mount them as we get them. We love to hear from you, and we want to put your pictures up on the RV Never. Website. And I want you to know that even though I'm very anxious to be home, um, <laughs> sure. we are spending an extra day here in Whitehorse just so we can get the podcast done and get it on the internet at the appropriate time, which may not be so easy because since we have stayed here in June, they have changed their internet policy. Ooh. The lady complained to me that it cost her $3,000 to pay for the June internet bill, and I'm afraid we contributed to that. Uh, this is a, a real challenge when you are in boonie places and um, especially in Canada, especially in Canada yeah. it appears that these campground owners are charged a lot for their internet access and so they either charge us a lot or more likely they limit you to the point where it's hardly worth getting on the internet. The one we, campground said free internet and 80 got, megabytes per rig. I thought it was 40. 40. Which yeah, it was ridiculous. Less, which we used up in about five minutes. And then we fought with each other about who used up the most. So... <laughs> The, We're fighting these, over internet. And of in course, these modern times, yeah. um, staying connected is challenging. But we, we are happy that here in Whitehorse, we finally have our satellite uh, well, radio connection back more video. or less. Yeah, yeah, we have the video, standard def, but no internet. I can actually see the internet satellite, but uh, we are far off of its footprint. So we're going to have to wait a couple of weeks before we actually get uh, that internet access back. And, of course, we always consider the satellite internet to be very limiting <laughs> at 400. 100 megabytes a day and when we reduce down to 40 we're choking that's hardly enough to even do email so but as we always say if you want it to be like home you should stay home and we definitely are not at home and we've seen some wonderful sights especially um in these last few weeks in alaska yes uh, since the mid-month podcast we have actually finished the loop and we made a podcast i believe here in whitehorse uh very early in the trip in june and now here we are back as we start back to the lower 40 Eight. Fortunately, we haven't had to go over the same road twice, except in hardly. Great, hardly at all, so that it is possible to do this entire route without doing the same thing twice. And as it's coming up to Labor Day, we do 
think about all the families traveling and hope that you're getting out camping because Labor Day is that last weekend of summer, and we hope that you're out RVing just as we are. We are usually at home during Labor Day. So we try is, to stay out of your way. <laughs> this is a highly unusual event that we are still 5,000 miles from home. And I hope you're having warmer weather than we are, and I think most of you must be. Yes. Uh, as we drove down here to Whitehorse yesterday, we could see some what they call termination dust up in the mountainsides, Ooh, which is snow. known as snow. Um, it's dust. not snowing on us, but it's certainly nearby. But in Dawson, where we were, they said they had snow fairly recently, and I think we said that we were going to start home when we started seeing snow. And although the temperatures have been reasonable um, in the 50s and 60s, we still have not seen much of the 70s. So although you are at home sweltering, we are here kind of cold and windy. Ready for some but summer. the gas prices have been very reasonable Astonishing. throughout most of the summer, although I did spend $500 yesterday to fill up. Canada is still expensive. Yeah, here in Canada, we're spending $1.35 per liter for diesel, and it's the same for gas. So that cost us for the 100 gallons about about $500. Uh, so in a round number, it's $5 a gallon. As you know, we're from the Chicago area, and when we go um, and check the gas prices at home, they've been considerably higher than what we've paid in Anchorage and Fairbanks in Which Alaska. Is a total shock. We are really surprised and pleased. The lowest price I paid for fuel in Anchorage for regular gas was three fifty-eight a gallon, which they were telling us uh, as we talked to the folks back home on the phone that it was about four twenty a gallon back in Chicago. So... Uh, it don't hesitate to come to Alaska because of the fuel prices. At least not at this least, summer. At least not this summer. The other years may be. So we've been very happy uh, with our decision to, to travel. So where have we been? Let's um, maybe start with uh, our experience in Kodiak. Well, when we came to Alaska last time, we tried to drive all the major roads that you can drive. And if you were trying to do that uh -huh. today, you still wouldn't get to Kodiak because Kodiak is a large island. What, an eight, nine-hour ferry ride from Homer, which yeah. is a road, a, a town you can drive to. It's the end of the road, they yeah. always say. And I know when I went to a presentation on Alaska a year or two ago, as we were starting to think about this trip, uh, a man talked about leaving his RV behind in, in Homer and taking the ferry with his toad to Kodiak and spending some time there, and he recommended it highly. That would be a fun thing to do, but we did an even funner thing because we didn't really stay <laughs> in Kodiak for um, much time at all. We boarded a seaplane and flew to Katmai National Park to look at some bears. And this was a very, very remote experience, but the boat we were on, which held six passengers, plied the coast and went into little coves and bays where the bears hang out, because the bears hang out where the rivers empty into the ocean and the fish start to spawn upstream. So they swim upstream, and the bears are waiting for them in the shallows. And as we found out, this is especially true having to do with the tides, because the tides trap the fish in pools, and then the bears can swoop in and start to... Easy pickings. I've read that this area is described as the Manhattan Island of Bears, uh, uh -huh. because there Manhattan. is so much food there for them to eat. Uh, bears, except when their parents, small cubs, are pretty much 
much loners and solo artists. Uh, but in this particular area, they fish in close proximity to each other, generally fairly peacefully, because there is so much fish available that everybody can leave with a full belly and everybody's happy. So we saw, I mean, bears in the wild. And this was a fabulous experience if you could do it. There are, there's only a couple places that you can do this. Katmai National Park has a lodge called Brooks Lodge. And I'm sure you've seen pictures of this. And uh, I had a link on last month's website of the bears at the falls where you, <laughs> you've seen these pictures of fish jumping up the falls and the bears catching them. That's uh, what you see there. But we saw uh, actually a broader range of bear, bear activity, activity at a much closer range because we were the only people there. So that if and you, hardly any people go there. And hardly any people go there. And we couldn't even buy a T-shirt because there was no place, no stores. We were had to be self-sustained. So we would go into shore in a little skiff, the six of us. We would get off, and we would hike through just the wilderness, um, but not very far because the bears are near the shore because they're looking for the fish. So we would set up at a likely location. Our guide, of course, knew where the bears would be, and we would just wait. And uh, almost always a bear or two or three or four or five would come walking up, and I mean walking up. Because the guide knows where the bears hang, uh, you get there before they do, and then you they approach you. And since they don't have any fear of you and they don't associate with you, with food in this particular area they treat you like a bush or a rock and if you are where they want to be they walk right next to you and there were they times did when we were not breathing and the guide gave, gave us very specific instructions you never run from a bear and just make a little bit of noise so that he knows what you are but they don't consider you to be dangerous and you don't consider them to be dangerous they are just often curious but they don't actually bother people in this setting anyway and they are so intent on fishing that you are just a non-entity you could be a tree and that's really hard on the psyche <laughs> because you see this thousand pound bear lumbering towards you on the shore but he's looking for fish he's not looking at you but he may turn and look at you and you're sitting there and you just go okay i'm hiding behind my camera <laughs> that's it I would watch but, them through my viewfinder and pretend I was watching TV. But I'll tell you, the pictures we got were just unbelievable. You'll have so, to put a few on the website. I did already. Uh, so I'll, I'll, of course, create the link for that. But you, if you're looking for a, a really nice bear experience, you might want to, uh, to take a look at that. But save your money. But save your money. It, yeah, it, it is very expensive. So that we did that from Kodiak. And I want to add that we've seen a lot of animals this summer, but there was a definite difference in the animal behavior yes. in a place where no one is allowed to hunt, and rightly so, because on the rest of Alaska, hunting and fishing are very popular pastimes, and the animals know this and have been taught this by their elders and are very wary of humans as they should be. So this kind of gave this area a guard. Garden of Eden aspect that the rest of Alaska does not have. We talked to a fisherman who had been fishing in, I'm not sure, in, in a very remote location. And he talked about the bears being kind of aggressive. And he was on would, the Russian River in the oh, Kenai. Oh, yes, in the Kenai. And he said that they were out there fishing and bears would come along and steal their fish or take their fish. You know, we didn't find anything like that because we didn't have any fish. We didn't, we weren't, the we bears weren't were totally non-aggressive. And the, where the bears would chase the, the fishermen if they tried to uh, <laughs> keep their fish. So there are different kinds of bears in different places. 
places to go. And the probably the most productive bear viewing day we had, we walked maybe a mile and a half from where we saw the bears fishing back to where we were picked up by the skiff. And on that mile and a half walk, I counted 20 distinct bears um, uh-huh. that we passed along the way, which was very impressive. Yeah, and the salmon are just coming in and they're going to die anyway, so it's a, it's an interesting life cycle that, that these animals have and that the fish have and that the whole place was just a, a very interesting experience. So we can recommend that if you're interested in some real animal viewing. This is kind of like going to the Galapagos, where the animals just pay no attention to you. And the boat we were on has also been chartered by National Geographic yeah. type people to do those wonderful videos that you see on TV. And we learned about a brand new bear video that's coming out from the on the Discovery Channel, which will be out in August of 2013. Made by the uh, BBC. Made by the BBC, so you want to pay attention to that because that was made right there in the Katmai. And that's another interesting thing is, is that this is a world-class viewing experience, and people come from all over the world to do this. And I think most Americans don't know about it. Um, but we certainly uh, would recommend it if you have the... Uh, the opportunity. We then drove up to Anchorage, went to Wasilla so that we could see Russia. From our backyard. Could you? No. <laughs> you can't see it from Kodiak either. And we drove up to Talkeetna. And you might say, well, I've never heard of Talkeetna. And really, we hadn't either. Yes, but Talkeetna is the place you go to to see well, Denali. That's what why we were there. Uh, many other people ah. go there because this is the the place that people who climb Denali, Mount McKinley, uh, stage from. All the people start going in late spring, and they're flown to a base camp at, at I think seven thousand feet oh, yeah. to, to acclimate, acclimate themselves, and then there are two or three other base camps Ooh. as they work their way up to the top. Um, and by the 4th of July, this climbing activity has come to an end because the snow melts enough to start avalanches. And what was already a pretty dangerous activity becomes even more so. I saw a report on the news that said only six people had died so far this summer and on the mountain. only 52% of the people actually made it to the summit. It's a real athletic tried. challenge. So that's one of the reasons that Talkeetna is the town that it is. But the its location reason. makes it a perfect place to view the mountain from afar. And we did a flight seeing, which was kind of cool. Um, because Denali, Mount McKinley, is so high, we took a plane that uh, would actually go to 20,000 feet so we could fly over the mountain and take a look at it. The day we did it, it was kind of cloudy, but it was uh, it was an interesting trip anyway, because it is a very impressive mountain, and th- the whole mountain range, frankly. So we took this flight seeing, and uh, we got to see Denali. We didn't get to see Denali from the road, but the park's road, the goes between Talkeetna and Denali National Park is very scenic with many views of Denali. Denali is actually on the south side of the park. And uh, I hate to say bad things about national parks. Because we love national parks. Yes, but they made a huge mistake when they made Denali National Park. Because, as you probably know, you can't see Denali National Park from the visitor center. You can't see the mountain from the visitor center. Yeah, yeah. You're in the national park, but you can't see it. And there are many places along the road that you could. Uh, We would have put the visitor center at the Denali State Park, which if you really want to see Denali from the road uh, without having to make a major investment investment in time and money, then drive down the road. Go to Denali State Park and you can see it uh, on any given day. Although they say just one in three days do you ever get, do you get to see it 30% of the time. 
Going to the Denali National Park actual headquarters and doing the things there is something of a disappointment. And I really, if you're going to skip something in Alaska, that's what I would skip. <laughs> and, and nobody does, because when we were because, there, there were people oh. from many foreign countries there. It's the place that's got the buzz, the name. What, the, what you do primarily in Denali National Park, if you're just a typical citizen, is you get on this bus that goes a school for, bus. A school bus that goes for some... Uh, well, they have various trips, but up to 12 hours round trip, and it takes you into uh, the park. And if you see animals, you see animals, but you see animals at a distance. And out of a dusty bus window. And out of a dusty bus window. Um, there's no nothing else to do while you're there. So I really can't recommend that. We did not do the bus trip this time. I think we talked about this before, but we just didn't want to be shake, rattled, and rolled. We've seen lots of good animals. And when you see the pictures that people take, they... Uh, it's a brown speck or a white yeah. speck or a black speck. Yeah, in the distance through the window. You can't set up your camera. You can't take your tripod because you can't get out of the bus. So that's not really the way to, to see animals. And if you get to see the... Mountain, it probably is probably a spectacular view, but that's Iffy. remote. Iffy. <laughs> chance of doing that. So let's go to Denali National Park and not see the mountain. And, really and see, not see animals anything. from very, very, very far away. Yeah, but we saw animals. We've seen animals better along the road. We've seen moose and bear and and sheep. Coyote and, and coyote fox. foxes. Right along the road. So that if you do enough driving, you will see these animals. And frankly, sometimes buses and things stop because we were... <laughs> One really nice moose shot. We were stopped. We stopped because there was a bus stop there full of Germans. It's the same kind of experience you have when you go to Yellowstone, where often you don't see the animals. Yes, you see the gang of people who are stopped yeah. to see the animals, and then you see them too. But in Yellowstone, you get to drive through the park, whereas here you don't get to drive through the park. I think Alaska has kind of a schizophrenic approach to animals. And uh -huh. This is me, an urban person, talking from the lower 48. You know, On the one hand, there is a huge reverence for the wild animal treasures that are in Alaska, and Denali National Park is certainly set up to protect the animals, and that's why they're very inaccessible to us, and I understand that. Um, but on the other hand, Alaskans are madly going around shooting animals and buying <laughs> permits for well, hundreds of dollars to shoot animals, and, and there are big discussions about subsistence hunting, um, and I think it's kind of an evolution from the time when if you wanted to eat, you had to hunt because there wasn't much else up here to eat, and these more modern times were even the tiniest little town has some sort of place where you can buy some sort of thing to eat. We've been in places where we would be passed by a number of trucks carrying bloody antlers from caribou. Um, and we saw people camping all over the roads with their guns, getting ready to shoot elk. And I guess I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it all. So this political statement was brought to you by the RV Navigators. <laughs> Sorry. You're a, a, little, a little bit of editorial here. If you'd like to cut this out, just take out the last 10 minutes. of. It's just inconsistent to me. Yeah. Well, well I don't know if it's inconsistent. It's just uh, they want to preserve the animals so they can shoot them. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Yeah. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. So from Denali, uh, it's just a couple hundred miles to Fairbanks. We wanted to cover all of Alaska as reporters for the RV Navigator, we wanted to make sure that we did a complete 
tour of Alaska. We had looked into covering the Dalton Highway, which goes from Fairbanks all the way up to Prudhoe Bay, also called Cold, also called Deadwood, Dead Horse, Dead Horse, is where the beginning of the Alaska Pipeline is, uh, and of course that runs 800 miles between Prudhoe Bay and Valdez. Round trip. Round trip. No, 800 miles from. Valdez down to uh, up to Prudhoe oh from Bay. Valdez okay so and we had been at the terminal in Valdez and we wanted to see where the oil started in Prudhoe. They talk about this this terrible terrible road that uh, travels north, full of trucks and it's a gravel road for four hundred miles, and that if you drive on it, uh, plan to lose a windshield and plan to bring bring two, two spare, spare tires. tires and and uh, be sure to bring camping equipment in case your car. Breaks You're going to beat the food. hell out of your vehicle. Yeah. They scared us. They scared us, yeah. And they, and they deceived do- us. Yes. And so we took a tour. Um, we took a, a tour that included the drive up to Prudhoe Bay, for, taking two days to make the 400-mile trip, and then flying back, which was saving you having to do that trip again. This was a three-day trip. Took one day to go to Coldfoot, which, which is across a, the Arctic Circle. Which is across the Arctic Circle, you get a little certificate and things. But we get on the road, and we're driving, 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 and... When does the road get bad? Two-thirds of the road to Coldfoot is paved. And, and even when it wasn't paved, it was quite smooth. Very smooth. We were very able to well go 50 maintained. and 60 miles an hour. And they talk about all the trucks and things, and there weren't many trucks at all. It was not any problem whatsoever. It wasn't very narrow. It wasn't. There weren't any precipices where you're going to fall over 1,000 feet. So we drove to Coldfoot, uh, stayed there the night, and then we drove the last half, which was virtually all gravel, but... This is not gravel gravel. This is maintained gravel because this is the route for the trucks to bring all the supplies up to Prudhoe Bay, which is a huge oil facility. Employing 5,000 people. Yes. uh, This road is very well maintained, and they wanted it gravel because in the – this is unbelievable. Listen to this. In the winter – they bring water trucks over the road. They spray it with water and then and then seed it with gravel. Then they spray it with water and put more gravel down, so that it's a four-inch layer of ice that goes the whole distance. The ice road will ha- handle more heavy traffic than the gravel. And the big truck traffic that we had heard about takes place in the winter, winter. when they can drive on this much harder road than, than we drove on here in the summer. And the equipment that these trucks bring yes. is immense, enormous, very heavy, and they need a big, wide road with a very stable roadbed to get all that stuff up there. But in the summertime when we were driving it, it was a great road. We A, a gravel road that you'd go 50 or 60 miles an hour on. And easily. along the way, our, our guide stopped at... At overlooks with little bathrooms. interpretive signs, um, pit oh. toilet type bathrooms. So it's quite set up for tourists. There were it was an occasional campground. I would certainly say if you're coming to Alaska with any sort of a rig, even a big motorhome like ours, you can easily drive to the Arctic Circle and, well, and come back all in one piece. Okay. 
I would not take your big rig, but certainly your toad. You could easily drive to the Arctic Circle round trip in a day and and make it a, a very interesting trip because there's a lot of scenery. What could be a bit more challenging if you don't bring your RV is a place to stay because those are in short supply and there aren't very many of them and they aren't very nice. Um, <laughs> they are the places that the people who built the road uh, lived in. They're like big trailer hotels i guess you would say uh-huh. uh, it's very interesting to one go one of the nights the night we spent in dead horse which is the town for prudhoe bay uh we didn't even have facilities in our room and the six women on our tour <laughs> all shared one shower one toilet one sink. because it was all for men for the men employees yeah it was a lot of stuff plumbing for you but not for us yeah because the man's bathroom was was gargantuan and and what we ate was what they had uh which kept your body going but was not a gourmet may experience by any means and was quite expensive and you had to keep reminding yourself of where you were so i'm still an advocate for taking the rv up there Oof. and sleeping in my own bed and eating my own food not all the way to prudhoe but certainly to the arctic circle which two-thirds of the doable. road is paved paved and the scenery for the first two-thirds of the road was spectacular yes, very, the uh, brooks range on, an, on a beautiful day is fabulous uh, neat rock formations um neat vegetation it was starting to change into fall colors already even though it's still august um so it was a beautiful trip and we're very glad that we did it but i feel like i could have done it without a tour yes we definitely felt that Uh, however the best scenery is north of coldfoot so you need to go 100 miles north of coldfoot to edigan pass that's i think (laughs) okay so we've given you specific details but if you need more we'll be glad to show those because after that the the land gets very flat and tundra-y and one thing it's so stupid i didn't realize this the reason why the tree line is there is not because of the cold or the bad soil or the permafrost. It's because there aren't enough sunny days for a tree to photosynthesize enough energy to be a tree. So that's why the tree line finally comes to an end and all you have is time. And of course, when you get to Prudhoe, it is a very strange place. It has no stores and it is all industrial heavy-duty equipment that's used in the wintertime to drill for oil. We were amazed that the summertime is the low season, and even though it was, oh, 55 or so degrees when we were there, uh, this was the middle of summer. This was the low season for them. But all the equipment had sleds on it or tracks and huge tires and was obviously made to go over the tundra. And they was just waiting for a winter season to come along. So that is an area that you really can't go to, although we did take it. Part of our tour was going to the Arctic Ocean. You were able to stick your feet in the Arctic Ocean if you wanted to. We just did our hands because we were wimps. <laughs> although some of the people did do the, the full thing, the and, full foot And thing. in the wintertime, uh, the Prudhoe Bay Complex, uh, because it's like on marshy soil, you really can't drive on most of it until it freezes, they told us it has over 500 miles of road and depending on the weather conditions uh, there are times when they have called condition three is what they call it where <laughs> the wind is so high and the snow is blowing around so much you literally cannot see your hand at the end of your arm and when it gets that bad um, they lock down everybody <laughs> because you can't see to go anywhere and so they try to anticipate when it's going to become condition three and have everybody somewhere safe and then 
then they just hunker down and wait for the storm to go by. A truly forbidding place to work, but it must be well paid because we heard that people who work there commute from places like Florida. Or Arizona. To come to Prudhoe. And the typical work schedule is two weeks on, two weeks off, and you work seven days a week for 12 hours a day while you're there, which is fine because there really isn't anything else to do but work. And the company provides you with everything, meals, housing, clothing, uh, because, you know, at 50 degrees below zero, they got to make sure that you're not going to freeze to death because they want you to work so that there there are no there is no stores or any other entertainment. They probably have movies on TV or something, but the place is not your typical uh, community. community by any means, even though for Alaska standards, it's huge, 5,000. And they fly their employees for free or included in their work uh, to Fairbanks or Anchorage. And then if you're commuting from Florida, you go the rest of the way on your own dime. So they must be making money hand over foot. Uh, There were four or five different petroleum companies represented there at the moment. And many, many, many subcontractors doing all the specialized work involved with getting the oil out of the ocean. A lot of different company names, including Halliburton, which was one that I recognized. They are working hard to keep that place going because since the pipeline opened, the quantity of oil that has been pumped out has lessened dramatically. They've turned some of the pumping stations off along the way, and they're looking for new sources of petroleum farther out and underneath to keep the pipeline flowing. So that was a round trip from Fairbanks, and if you'd like to do that, uh, it is definitely available at all times of the summer, and you can uh, easily make yourself a reservation we did on very short notice. Uh, we did want to kind of see the Aurora Borealis, but that didn't So far, happen. that hasn't happened. So, uh, the next stop, we went from Fairbanks to Chicken. <laughs> Which is named Chicken because... The original gold miners who lived there wanted to name it after the Arctic ptarmigan, which is a bird that is very common in the area, which is spelled P-T-A... <laughs> A-R-M-I-G-A-N. When there were enough people there to justify having a post office, they needed to come up with an official spelling of the name, and nobody could figure it out, so they named themselves Chicken instead. Well, the ptarmigan is also known as the Arctic Chicken. So they named the the town Chicken, and it has kind of an interesting history, and it's, it's... been there for quite a while and is a gold mining town and the whole thing is is located on the tailings of gold mines from previous years but it has a population of about 10 and it and, has kind of a cachet. Everybody yes. talks about it, and it's it's the most making something out of nothing place <laughs> I've ever been to. <laughs> and we took a tour of historic chicken. And saw a bunch of old buildings from the gold mining time, which were collapsing dramatically because of the permafrost. Uh, it's such a problem up here to build anything, because as soon as you build a structure and heat it, it melts the ground underneath, and it starts to heave and thaw, and the floor either collapses or makes a big mound in the middle of your living room. I mean, it's hysterical. These So they're very used to large groups of people, even though it is a very small town, because all the caravans that come, as well as Holland America tourists off of cruise ships, send four buses a day through Chicken, because they're coming over the top of the world highway. Which was our real goal. Which is is everybody's real goal. It's kind of a starting place for doing the top of the world, or an ending place, depending on which direction you're going. It is really a place with no nothing. 
nothing. They, until recently, haven't had flush toilets because they had no drainage system. They didn't have a dump station. They didn't have uh, a water because they had to bring the water in, although that apparently has changed in the last couple of years. And everything runs off a generator, which we found was problematic for the old RV. Especially once the caravan came in and there were another 20 rigs online. <laughs> we finally gave up and ran our own generator, and even I think though we, we had paid the, for electricity. We gave them electricity from us. <laughs> Yeah, I think our generator was probably somewhat bigger than theirs. Anyway, uh, it, it was an interesting situation. We stayed there a couple of days, an extra day because of the rain. And, you know, that's one of the other advantages that we've had on this trip is is that because our itinerary is very flexible, we stayed an extra day because the weather was bad. And we were very glad that we did. Because this, the weather was beautiful the next day, and we had wonderful views from the top of the World Highway, which is appropriately named, and you felt like you could see forever. Uh, the top of the World Highway is uh, your typical gravel road, I would say. Uh, the American side being far worse because uh, it's real gravel and muddy gravel. And, and the I wouldn't shoulders want to drive it are up. very yeah. soft. And it has uh, some passes to go over, so you go over, you, you drive on some roads that you wouldn't want to meet anybody. It's an adequate one and a half lane road. <laughs> <laughs> and, and our RV is one and a half lanes wide. And as we did the research for this trip, and you read all these scary stories about the Dalton Highway and, and the Alaska Highway. Uh, the top of the world, I would say, is one that kind of deserves that reputation, yes. unlike the others that we've traveled this summer. And I was talking to the proprietor at the gas station, and I was asking him if they ever had any accidents on the road. And he said, oh, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, we had an RV that slid over the soft shoulder, soft into, shoulder the valley. into the valley. And uh, he said, I was amazing because I, the, the RV just slid down, didn't roll over, and it's tow car actually stayed upright for the whole trip down. That was what was amazing to him. What was scary to me, having planning to do the road the next day, was oh, <laughs> it's raining and it is soft and ooh, am I going to be there? And, uh, and he said they lose between 3 to 12 vehicles a summer over the side, which does give you pause. <laughs> So be careful if you drive it. And the next day we drove the the road. Uh, fortunately, there were very few people on the road, so we didn't meet anybody uh, big coming at us. And we saw the spot. They had cones where the RV had slid down the hill, and it was a spot that I wouldn't want to get stuck in. And once we got through the border and we're back in the Yukon, uh, the road got somewhat better and was even paved in spots. So the worst of it was toward the chicken side of things. So from there you head to Dawson Creek. Dawson City. Thank you. Dawson Creek is where we started this trip. Uh, that's at the beginning of the Alaska, Alaska Highway. Highway. So we went to Dawson City, which seems backwards in terms of names, but we went to Dawson City, which is located on the Yukon River. We spent a couple of days there. It's it's a very nicely done gold rush town in that they've kept so much of it going. Uh, it kind of made me think of Williamsburg in, in Virginia a little bit, although on a much smaller scale, because at its peak there were 30,000 people living in Whitehorse, so there was a lot of uh, activity and commerce associated with that time, and Parks Canada, which is like the National Park Service for Canada has purchased a number of the buildings in the town um, and restored them and gives tours uh, where the people are dressed in the gold rush clothing and and let you know how things were. Um, all but the main street is still dirt and there are boardwalks rather than sidewalks. But it is nicely restored. Um, and so it's, it's a nice genuine feeling tourist activity and if you go out of town in any direction there's still a lot of gold mining happening including dredge number four. So this is the end 
of the top of the world highway, so all the caravans and the buses and things, uh, and it's a, a go through here, and so it's a very popular place to stop. So people stop at Chicken, and they stop at Dawson City as uh, two ends of the of the highway, and so they're both fairly touristic, although very different in character because Chicken has no downtown and no no real stores or anything. We also did a little side trip from Chicken to Eagle. Which is a town of somewhat more consequence than Chicken because it's much. on the Yukon River. And at times this, this town has done pretty well in that there was a nice paddle wheel steamer service from mm. Dawson to Eagle. But in the last few years, uh, the boats have stopped and the tour buses have stopped and their commerce is down about 80%. So we we kind of had the feeling we were visiting... You may not go- be going to Eagle much longer. ...a ghost town that was about to become a ghost town. And the dramatic thing that we saw there was a video of the ice breakup, which is a huge event all over Alaska. <laughs> all those frozen rivers uh, finally let loose, and that's your first you can actually win money of spring. And uh, yeah, one of the towns before we got to Fairbanks has the annual lottery where you bet on the exact minute, minute that the, the ice, ice is, is going to break loose. <laughs> You can win big bucks. And, and everybody in Alaska buys a ticket. And in Eagle, there was a particularly bad set of perfect storm conditions where there was more snow than other than other years, and the ice was deeper than other years. And then they had a bunch of rain and 70 degrees, and everything broke loose all at once. And there were ice chunks in this video as big as refrigerators jamming up on each other. And when there were enough of them, they started traveling into the town. And they um, knocked some of the buildings off their foundations. Some of them traveled 75 feet before they came to a stop. And if your building wasn't full of ice chunks, uh, there was also the flooding that came with it as the river continued to melt. And that poor town really took it on the chin. It was nice to see it restored, and we wish them the best. But we wonder, they need to find something else to do to make a go of it, I'm afraid. So as you can tell, this has been a very busy month for us, and we have seen a lot and done a lot, and I hope that we haven't bored you with this itinerary, but uh, it is an exciting place to go. Alaska in four months is really not hard to take. We will be glad to be home, but we still have a couple more weeks before we will actually be there. A lot of driving. And uh, a lot of driving. So far, we've driven about 6,300 miles. We've started the trip back. So... Other exciting things that have happened in the world of RVing. Well, we would want to miss a little bit of technology. And Ken, as a result of reading some things about AirPlay, went and bought his Apple TV. I never really thought I would have have an Apple TV. And you got to buy it at the Fred Meyer grocery store. (laughs) We love Fred Meyer. It's a very nice grocery store chain. Yes, and they have uh, all sorts of uh, things that kind of is an upscale competitor to Walmart, but only in Alaska. But have you thought about buying an Apple TV? Well, one of the things that the Apple TV does that's new is, is that it has this AirPlay option, which allows you to take anything on your iPad screen or now on your Mac screen or your Windows screen and project it to your TV set. This is very cool. Um, I've looked for wireless HDMI for quite a while. The way I have it set up in our RV is is that our computer, I have to use a wire to connect it to the TV set when we want to use uh, it, the TV as a display. And I have to do that, and I can't put it in permanently because it's on the slide, and I have no place to put the wires. So I have to wire it and unwire it each time we want to use. It's a hassle and kind of unsightly. That's right, and we like to keep our RV looking Spiffy. good with the wires hidden. Well, that's one of my mandates. 
so I was looking for a way to do this wirelessly, and this is uh, with the Apple TV. You can do this now, which is very nice, and it works uh, quite well. If you have a newer Mac, you can take anything on your screen and send it to the TV over Wi-Fi. So this is really a viable option. Plus, of course, the Apple TV, which only costs a hundred bucks and is pretty much cross-platform. The Apple TV it has uh, Hulu built in, has Netflix built in, so that if you have a decent Wi-Fi connection, and we have had a decent Wi-Fi connection in a couple of places, it will automatically connect up to those services, and you can watch movies and whatever uh, right there directly from the Apple TV. Of course, Apple TV has a couple of competitors, but the competitors don't have this... Uh, this wireless connectivity for your iPad, your iPhone, and your computer. It, like the Apple TV, uh, the Roku will do some of the stuff, the Neo TV, and they all are quite small. And you might want to even consider taking this box with you when you travel. Because even if you don't bring a computer, the, these boxes are, what, about four inches by four inches? Like a deck of playing cards. Almost. Yeah, and you can just throw it in your suitcase and bring it with you on a trip. And if the hotel or whatever has decent Wi-Fi, it will allow you to connect up to these services and watch your movies. And if you have Slingbox, you can actually watch the stuff from home. Is that too technical? <laughs> Well, not in theory. So actually doing it, that's the hard part. Well, if you have an internet connection at home and you have a sling box connected to your TV set at home, it will take whatever you want to, whatever you get at home, and it will send it over the wire so that you can receive it uh, any place in the world. Because you do get kind of starved for news when you travel. At least we do. We have been, oh, <laughs> we have been in some boony boony places. No TV, no satellite t radio, no cell phone, no cell phone, and limited Wi-Fi. Positively medieval. Positively. We are glad to be heading south. The WineGuard Company has a new paper-thin, translucent, Razor HD TV broadcast antenna for tailgating, camping, and in the RV market. It's just 0.6 inches thick. This flat antenna can be hung on the wall and used for receiving local broadcast channels. Uh, you know, your ABC, CBS, NBC. That sounds like a great idea. Weighing just over five ounces, it will... Boy, I'm going to have to get one of these. Sounds like I could put it in my purse. Sounds like you could. And because we are, we've been using our computer as a recording device, a TV recording device, it would be nice to have an extra antenna for that. So maybe this would be the good thing to buy. That's from WineGuard. I wonder if they have it at Fred Meyer. Hmm. They just might. Oh, LED lights. Listener Dave suggested that we go to rigidindustries.com and check out their LED lights. I last saw these while looking for driving lights for my SUV. I have a set of this company's lights already, and they are top quality and made in the USA. I bought a set of their Dually lights for use as an auxiliary re reverse lights a couple of years ago and was really surprised at the quality of the wiring, harness, etc. Might be interesting for us to review. Well, I would like to hear a review. Uh, LED lights are really coming into their own. Um, they're almost cost-effective, but uh, in most situations they're not, and you have to do a, a fair amount of rewiring in order to put them in. For instance, if you want to put in fluorescence, you have to take out the ballasts and things like that. So we have not really invested much in LEDs. 
I did buy an LED uh, replacement bulb for what I consider the reading spotlight that's over my easy chair, um, and I have been quite disappointed by its lack of brightness. It would make a nice night light, but it's not a good reading light. But this changes, so go to this website, take a look at it and see, and let us know if you bought something and uh, are happy with it or unhappy with it. This is an interesting story. Navistar. Uh, Navistar, who makes uh, diesel engines, um, and they're used by Tiffin, I know, and used by Monaco, uh, has touted their engines as not needing DEF, which is that fluid that you have to add for all the new emission standards. And they just came out and said that, oh, the system that they were using just is not going to meet the new standards, so they're going to have to go to DEF diesel engines. So they were talking about the fact that you didn't have to waste all that extra space for the DEF tank and buy the DEF and all that sort of stuff for your diesel engine, and that they had the the solution, but... Gee, they just couldn't meet the new engine, the new standards for emission, and so they're going to have to go to DEF. I wish they could have done it because yes. it would be nice not to have to deal with that. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. They're going to be selling engines, and they're going, they buy energy credits so that they can sell the engines. That's really kind of underhanded. Underhanded, yeah. Who could forget the frenzy to buy travel trailers and mobile homes after the hurricanes hit Florida in 2004, and <laughs> maybe even right now? In Sarasota County, after Katrina and Rita in the Gulf Coast, FEMA bought more travel homes and travel trailers, and beginning in 2006, the federal government started auctioning them off for pennies on the dollar. While some were sold as single units and small lots, some were sold as as many as 20000 at a time to one company. We obtained an entire list of FEMA trailers and mobile homes that were sold at auction from 2006 to May of 2012. It shows that many were snatched up by mobile home parks and RV dealers across the country at deep discounts, which we've seen. Some RV parks put them up like a cabin for people who don't bring their own RV there. And they have a very distinctive look because they're rather spartan with small windows and no decals or paint or anything like that. So they're easy to recognize. Records show that plenty of RV dealers and mobile home parks across Florida and Tampa Bay area bought FEMA units over the years. But we couldn't find anyone willing to talk about it. The reason might be because of the well-publicized problems with formaldehyde, which now must be disclosed. Or maybe it's because some dealers got such a great deal at taxpayers' expense. The records show that some real steals. In 2006, a travel trailer a year old sold for $750. The same year, a 2005 Fleetwood Terry travel trailer sold for $500. Skip ahead a few years to 2008, and the GSA sold a 2005 Gulfstream trailer for FEMA for $129. But that wasn't the cheapest. We found another 2005 Gulfstream for $25 and a 2005 Fleetwood for the same price. What the records do not show is the condition. According to FEMA, the average price for a new travel trailer during Katrina was $15,000 and a mobile home was $30,000. How often these trailers are used and for and whatever happened to all the units is still a mystery. Well, your your impulse is to house people, but if that's not what they were used for... and Well, I'm sure they were used for house, housing, but the way to get rid of them seems yeah. like they should be stored someplace. <sighs> so it's been a long RV Navigator podcast. 
And I think we should end it about here. All right. With all this exciting news and with many days of driving ahead, we look forward to talking to you in a month when we will be at home, hopefully. I hope so. Resting and fixing things. And looking at our 15,000 pictures that have accumulated since the beginning of this trip. It's been a photo frenzy. A photo frenzy, even though the weather hasn't been all that good. So I guess we should say again that we hope to see you at a campground near us. In the but near you better future. hurry because we're better. on the way home. Yes, indeed. And But we will be traveling again, and we've enjoyed sharing with you. And please send us an email at navigator at rvnavigator.com. Until next time, this is Ken, your RV Navigator, and signing Martha off. And the co-pilot saying happy travels.